Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're bringing you listener mail. That's right. It's been a little while. We've had some great listener mail build up, and so we are here to share it with you. And to help us share the listener mail love, uh, we have, as always, Carney, our mail bot. Uh, Carney, say hi to the audience. Now, Carney, uh, you know, he always listens into our topics, and then, of course, he feeds off of the listener mail. And, uh, he, he, you know, he was really into our series on facial recognition software, you know, because he is mostly software. Uh, but he was also very interested in my um, – the question I raised about whether dogs have faces. As were a number of listeners. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, 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 it's, it stirred up some, uh, I don't know, debate. I guess you could say on <laughs> online about whether dogs have faces. No, mostly it was just people saying, yes, I think dogs have faces and here's why. Um, I don't feel particularly strongly uh, about it myself. I just merely commented that I just tend not to think of the front of a dog's skull as being a face. I certainly see that it as having eyes and a mouth and a nose and so forth. But I, I still cannot believe this. <laughs> this is the weirdest thing you've ever said. But it's not just dogs. It's just you know animals in general um, <laughs> that are not uh, human or nearly so. At any rate, it apparently uh, messed with Carney a little bit as well because now he is obsessively going around scanning the uh, the, the fronts of dogs' skulls uh, and uh, trying to put together some sort of facial recognition uh, argument based off of that. Just wait till he gets to the Buck Flower Dog from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, yeah, that's going to really throw him for a curve, isn't he? I got to give a shout out. Uh, Seth reminded us of that one. That is the best human face dog of all time. Wasn't there one in, uh, there was like a, a similar film from the 70s that had to do with witchcraft? Oh. With like Alan Alda in it or something? Oh, this is ringing bells. Yeah. I just looked it up. It's called the Mephisto Waltz. Yes. I've never seen this one. It looks really good. You know, I don't think I ever saw it in its entirety either, but back when I was watching a lot of uh, Sci-Fi Channel, uh, back in the old days of Sci-Fi Channel, mm-hmm. when they spelled it correctly, um, it, they would, they would <laughs> have... Before it was Siffy. Yeah. Before it was Siffy, yeah. They, they would have a lot of promos for, you know, these films that they had the rights to show, and one of them was the Mephisto Waltz. And I think <gasps> they showed the, 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 the faced dog creature in that trailer. Right in the middle of the Forever Night marathon. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it, I don't think they were showing Forever Night at that point. This is back when they were all about it was classic Doctor Who, mm. and also occasional like shows like uh, what uh, uh, Manimal, Mammoth Manimal <laughs> was that it? Sequest, uh, yeah. I don't know. Sequest? Maybe Sequest. Definitely Time Tunnel uh, shows like that. Movies like Gargoyle, Space 1999 was another one that got a lot of play. Oh, what was the one with the the, the car, the car that could talk? Knight Rider. Yes, yes. I don't remember if Knight Rider was on there or not. All right, well, stay tuned for the new podcast series Robert and I are soon launching about classic sci-fi channel programming. (laughs) I would love to do that podcast. I don't know if anyone else wants to listen to it. Oh, my God. I I would would make that in my free time. (laughs) 
no, but today is about stuff to blow your mind, and it is about stuff to blow your mind. Listener mail. Uh, we yeah, we received a lot of great stuff uh, related to the face recognition episode, certainly, mm-hmm. but also uh, volcanoes was yeah. a big topic. Yeah, a bunch of stuff. I guess uh, we could start by addressing one thing. We got a bunch of mail about. We may have brought this up on the website before, but I figure we here's a good time to say it. A lot of people have just emailed saying, "Hey, where's your website?" or like. I'm looking for source lists, links that would be on the landing page for this episode. Can you help me find them? Sorry, folks. Our website has been led off to the website slaughterhouse. It is no more. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and this, I believe, happened for all the shows that uh, you know, that are in the you know what was previously known as the Stuff Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now if you go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, if you go to InventionPod.com, or if you go to the websites for shows like uh, Stuff You Should Know or Stuff You Missed in History Class, those will direct to iHeart listings for that show. Right. Now, to be clear, we don't want you to be alarmed. This doesn't mean anything about the show itself. The show is not going away, anything like that. It's just iHeart doesn't have individual websites for its podcasts, and they uh, enforced that on our show, among all others. Right. Now, and if you're looking for, like, lists of resources that were used in a particular episode, I guess the good news there is that we were kind of sucked at doing that anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> Especially recently. Yeah, yeah. So there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot lost in that regard. I think the main thing that was, that was lost is that we had a, you know, we had a pretty good, uh, you know, searchable archive system of, of past episodes. It was a good way to go back and look at post, past episodes. And there were a lot of blog posts on there from over the years. Uh, but I had not been actively blogging for you know at least a year, so um, no ongoing blogging efforts were interrupted on that count. Oh, and while the website is no longer accessible, they assure us that it's still somewhere in the dark space, Oof. and that means that for all we know, it could return in the future. We it's just not there right now. Yeah, but if there's something particular, something specific you were looking for, uh, you can always just email us and ask. And yeah. uh, you know, if it's a question about a source we use, like, hey, what was that book you mentioned? Mm-hmm. How do you spell that author's last name? Uh, we can we'll generally be able to get back to you and let you know. We'll uh, do our best, <laughs> right? And, and likewise, if you're trying to remember, like, if you are thinking back to a blog post and you're like, oh, what was that blog post? What was that topic? Uh, you know, ask us via email and, you know, maybe we can fish that up for you. Uh, you know, no promises, but uh, it, sometimes we can retrieve that information. Certainly. Uh, so I guess it's time to jump into the listener messages. Now, as always, we got to preface this by saying we're sorry. We get so much wonderful mail. There is no way uh, in heck for us to read it all or even get close. This will just have to be a small selection of messages, but we appreciate all the mail we get if your message was not featured Please don't take it personally. Uh, Write again and maybe you'll get on next time. Uh, But this first message concerns our pair of episodes about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. This comes from Seth. Seth says, Hi there, my name is Seth, and I am a park ranger at Mount Rainier National Park. Specifically, my job title is climbing ranger. That means my duties include staffing the high camps and climbing the mountain many times each spring and summer. I've also worked for 12 years as a climbing guide on Mount Rainier and many other mountains all over the world, including many of the ones on your list of volcanoes at the end of Lessons of Vesuvius Part 2. Oh, wow. Whoa. 
I spend a lot of time living, climbing, skiing, and working on an active volcano, and so I really enjoyed the Vesuvius series, although the description of the victims at Pompeii and Herculaneum did give me serious pause as I work and live both on and near Mount Rainier. Yikes. I would prefer my brain tissue to remain unvitrified. Thank you. <laughs> I was also surprised that Mount Rainier did not make your list of volcanoes with large populations living in close proximity. It is the only decade volcano in the continental USA, and there are millions of people that would be affected if the volcano were to erupt. I guess the main issue, though, is really the lahars that would form from pyroclastic flows melting the largest glacier system in the lower 48 and scouring dirt, rock, and debris from the river valley and carrying them all the way to Tidewater, not the explosion of the volcano itself. Your podcast really got me wondering why I have felt drawn to this mountain. I've spent nearly 20 years climbing, skiing, and working on it, and the steaming fumaroles, sulfur seeps, and crater ice caves always inspire a sense of wonder and awe, even after more than 200 times climbing the summit. I really enjoyed the episode, so thanks for that. I'm also really hoping you do one on the year without a summer. As an avid skier, I would love to have a year like that, just as long as we don't have any boathouse situations. Best regards, <laughs> Seth. Well, thanks for getting in touch, Seth. Uh, the mention of Lahars actually brings me back to something that we did talk about in one of our Vesuvius episodes where we mentioned the volcano Katla in Iceland, which is near the uh, the village of Vik, is down on the southern coast of Iceland. And I was talking about how I had been there. And Katla's in a similar situation to what you're talking about. There, the threat is not so much of an explosive eruption like Vesuvius. The threat is changed by the fact that the volcano there lies under this vast glacier. So try to imagine what happens when a volcano erupts under millions of tons of ice. Uh, the greatest danger from eruptions here comes from lahars again, you know, these, these floods of mud and water coming out of the glacier system. Mm -hmm. And from uh, Jokulhlaups. Oh, these are the, the ice giants, right? Yeah. These are these uh, outburst floods from glaciers, uh, you know, so like there might be a lake that is fed by the flow off of a glacier as it melts, but then suddenly lots of heat melts a lot of glacial water and that then the lake breaches whatever container it's normally held in and there's rapid draining. So a lot of times we don't even imagine properly what the most destructive elements of a volcanic eruption would be. And one of the funniest things is that – People often think, okay, the danger of a volcanic eruption comes from flows of lava. That's like mm -hmm. one of the least dangers to worry about. Right. I mean, uh, certainly if you were in the position to be affected by the flowing lava, it, it's dangerous. But, right. But yeah, it's all these other factors. And ultimately, it's, in many of the scenarios we mentioned, it's it's what happens when then the population flees. Where are they going? What are the what kind of conditions are in place for them to actually evacuate the area? Yeah. All right, here's another one. Uh, this one comes to us from Derek. Derek writes, uh, hey, guys, just finished listening to Lessons of Vesuvius Part 2 and had an experience to share. My wife and I visit Hawaii every few years, not as often as I'd like. Uh, during one of our trips, we rented a house in a community just outside of Pahoa on the Big Island. It was fantastic. Later, I learned that in 2018, several rifts opened not uh, even 200 meters away from the house where we stayed. Needless to say, it is long gone. During our 2019 trip, I was excited to see if I could estimate the location of our former getaway by visiting the lava field. I certainly could have located at using a GPS, but every place at which the, a road encountered the lava flow, there were many signs warning that venturing into the area was both dangerous and illegal. Oh. I read... 
what you saying he should have gone? No, <laughs> no, no. no. Obey I, so the I, signs. Obey the signs. No, I, having it, been to Vol- Volcano, Volcano National Park, don't be one of those people who disregards the signs. I know. I okay. So you did. You know. Yes. Obey the signs. Do not cross over into the dangerous area. But I, I'm one who constitutionally, by nature, is drawn into areas that you are not allowed to go into. <laughs> well, I understand that. Yes. Uh, anyway, he continues. I read that the area is still private property, and walking out onto the lava would have been trespassing. Oh, okay. Bummer. Uh, I was amazed at two other observations of the surrounding area. One, more than a year after the lava flow, there are still areas of the field so hot that steam pours from breaks in the crust. Wow. Two, I saw many uh, dozens of instances of trees already sprouting uh, from the field, tiny palm seedlings amidst the black landscape, taking keen advantage of the lack of competition in nutrients. I'm not uh, sure really which astounds me more, the Earth's devastating destructive power or life's blatant disregard for it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Derek. Oh, that reminds me of the stories of uh, the forests pouring into the caldera on Vesuvius. Yeah. Uh, life not only finds a way, life almost just kind of gives a middle finger to the geologic danger. The uh, I, I have to drive home again, though, that you know, anyone out there, if you have the opportunity to visit the Big Island and go to Volcano National Park, uh, or it, it's I just highly recommend it. I, I went there once many years ago, and I, I haven't had the chance to go back yet, but I hope to because it, it's it's just it's. It's it's amazing experience to be able to walk through these volcanic craters, uh, to 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 like look down into a crater and see a complete rainbow below you in the crater, or walk through a crater and see the 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 rainbow overhead and like pass beneath it, and then look back and see it behind you, and to, to interact with these environments that you feel like you're on another world, mm-hmm. uh, and then to see either you know direct signs or these other signs of the you know intense volcanic activity of the the living earth right there beneath you. It's, it's unlike anything else. Do you want to move on to Kamamuda? Uh, yeah, let's move on to that, that wonderful warm feeling of Kamamuda. Okay, here come the warm feels. This first message is from Helen. Helen says, Hi, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Love your work. Keeps me entertained and educated and more importantly indulges my intellectual curiosity in a contained way. I wonder what that means, contained way. Within the, the limits of uh, like the podcast episode? The limits know. of sanity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Helen says, the recent episode on Kamamuda reminds me of another feeling which hasn't a direct English language correlate. It's one of my three personal life principles – Agape. Ah. This is an ancient Greek word and is usually interpreted in a Christian context as godlike love. But I was taught that it means unconditional love between humans, which is reliant upon nothing except the shared existence. The best example I can think of is showing love and care and compassion for someone even when there is hate between them, treating your enemies with respect and mercy simply because they are also human. It's hard to do to transcend the secondary feelings one has for another person, and it sometimes seems futile and grudging, but having been on the receiving end of it before, I can attest it's one of the things that could make a difference in a single person's life, so I try to practice it where I can. Thanks again. Don't ever stop making us think. All right, here's another listener mail. This one comes to us from Kelly, uh, also on Kamamuda. Uh, Kelly writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. I love the episode on Kamamuda as a musician and a music teacher. 
I have tried to describe this emotion so often and can never quite find the words for it. I recently got back into playing with an ensemble, which I really missed. I would often try to articulate what I love about playing with a group that I couldn't get from playing alone, but I never felt that my explanation captured exactly what I was feeling. Listening to this episode, I realized that Kamamuta was exactly what I was trying to convey. Creating music with a group provides that sense of camaraderie, shared experiences, goosebumps, and often, quote, a sudden upwelling of uncontrollable happiness, uh, to use Joe's words. Even though I won't likely use the term Kamamuta in everyday conversation, I do feel that understanding the term actually has helped me uh, understand the feeling better. Thank you both for the hard work you put into the podcast every week. Best wishes, Kelly. Having played in a band, I absolutely know what Kelly's talking about, this feeling of like when when you kind of lock in and suddenly everything's going right when you're playing music with other people, especially I feel like in improvising music, uh, like mm. if there's a moment where you're improvising music with other people and everybody like makes a change at the same time, it's like that sudden moment where you you feel as if there's some kind of telepathy between you and you can get goosebumps, the feeling in the chest. It's very huh. powerful. Interesting. Yeah, I've never had that experience. I was never like in a garage band or anything like that. But uh, but certainly in the more structured sense of just uh, the communal creation of music, um, you know, with the you know, high school band, for mm-hmm. example, and then, um, and, and then occasionally like church choirs, that sort of thing, like mm-hmm. the commun- communal singing opportunities. Uh, I, I, I can very much understand what uh, Kelly is talking about here. Yeah. I mean, all kinds of music are, I think, very strongly inherently unifying yeah. whenever you perform with other people. Yeah. Okay, this next message comes from Vicky. Vicky says, Dear Robert and Joe, I've been listening to Stuff to Blow Your Mind since 2013 and listening to Invention since it started. Thank you for all the thought-provoking topics. I really enjoyed the Kamamuta show, and I wanted to add another reason why someone might want a word for this feeling. Since the feeling can be overwhelming to some of us, we can disarm it a bit if we have a word. I have a few personal experiences of creating a word for this. First, when I was a teenager growing up in Wisconsin, my dad and I were watching some kind of nature documentary with baby animals surviving against odds, which created a strong feeling of Kamamuta. But I didn't want to cry. I was a teenager. And I looked at my dad, who was also trying not to cry. He was an American man. And he said, it's heartwarming. And that made us both laugh. After that, heartwarming was our secret code for when we saw something that brought up those feelings and we could laugh instead of crying. This is interesting, you know, the idea that, that you're feeling the, essentially the Kamamuta so strongly that it must be expressed. There has to be an, an outlet for it. It, it reminds me of uh, some of the uh, – I believe it was a past episode. I can't remember if I recorded this one with you or maybe this was a Julie episode, but about the, the desire to, to bite a baby because it's so cute. This was with Julie. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and uh, as I recall, the argument here was, yeah, you're just so overcome with this feeling and it needs out in some way and like the 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 best you can sometimes do is to like reach out and like pinch the child <laughs> to just sort of deflate the overwhelming sense of Kamamuta. And this sounds oddly similar. Uh, you know, it's like there's this – we're feeling something. Something is happening. We have to say it. We have to transform it into – transfigure it into some other emotion. Otherwise, it's going to destroy us. 
Yeah, she tells another example about this that I think is interesting. So This one also involves singing. So she says, uh, now I live in Tokyo. I've been here for more than 25 years, married to a Japanese man. I belong to an association of, quote, foreign wives. Women currently are formerly partnered with a Japanese person. And we gather once a year from all across Japan for a weekend convention. It's always a great time, but it always closes on Sunday morning with a ceremony where everyone holds hands and sings a song written by one of the members. Total Kamamuda. I find it too overwhelming. So several years back, I started sneaking out just before the singing, and I found several other women doing the same thing. So now we plan it. We talk about when to make our escape, a timely visit to the restroom, for example, to avoid the singing. We all know what the singing means. It's not the singing itself. I go out to karaoke with some of these people. It's that overwhelming feeling. Japanese has a word for that feeling, kandao, literally emotions moving, and people use it fairly often in conversation. When I first came here, I was surprised that people would say in English that something had moved them, but eventually I realized they were just translating the Japanese word. Hmm. Uh, And at the end, she recommends a video that invokes mild kamamuda. (laughs) It's a promotional video made by the Kanagawa Prefecture that involves a lot of people from the area singing and dancing in costumes to this one pop song. It is indeed extremely cute very sweet. Uh, <laughs> uh, but this is really interesting because she talks about all these these multiple methods, both like having a kind of code word, but then also having a kind of avoidance ritual, all for avoiding situations that are going to cause that Kamamuda reaction, the goosebumps, the tears, the, you know, the warmness in the chest, because sometimes it's too much. And people do this strategically all the time. Like, you know, even though the emotion of Kamamuda is described as inherently pleasurable, even though it feels good, it represents a loss of control. It can be frightening, embarrassing. It can make you feel vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, I can, I, I can, I think I can relate to that some with movies because I, I certainly at times appreciate being moved by a film. You know, uh, you know, f- the emotional roller coaster of a of a good film, and if it's done right, you don't feel manipulated. You mm-hmm. know, uh, you feel as if you were you were actually actually engaging with the picture. But then there are other times where you just don't want. To feel that, you know, and you certainly don't want to feel like the filmmakers are trying to manipulate you into having a particular emotional state. And maybe that's one of the reasons I'm drawn to uh, to to bad films mm-hmm. is that that oftentimes you, <laughs> it's true. you can be sure that you're probably not going to have a, a strong emotional reaction unless it I don't know unless it's to something that is uh, you know done poorly and poor, done poorly in just the right way to uh, evoke those kind of emotions. This is basically how I feel when anyone makes a, like a, a current horror movie recommendation for me. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, you should see such and such. It'll make you feel so bad. It's going to be so <laughs> shocking. It's just really going to tear you apart. And I don't know. I think I'd rather just watch something with a rubber monster costume in you, it. You were just talking about your love for the fly. That, that's the king of genuine bad feelings. Yeah, yeah. But I think the part of that is that I saw it I saw it at a, at a point in my life when I was more open to those experiences mm-hmm. where I was like, yes, let me watch some challenging horror. I'm ready to be challenged. And and uh, and so now, you know, it, it already has a warm place in my heart. It's not going to shock me with anything new. I mean, I may be, you know, when you revisit a film, you always feel something. If it's a good film, anyway, you feel something different. You find new corners to it. Uh, but for the most part, I know what I'm going to get. Um, 
and maybe I'm, yeah, I'm, as I get older, I'm, I'm less inclined to have that kind of vulnerable experience, especially with a horror film, yeah. you know, because I don't know, it's like a, the, the horror film does not have my, my best interests at heart necessarily. <laughs> it's trying to hurt you? Yeah, that's, uh, well, I, some, I think so. Some films maybe. I, I think know. a lot of films, like, uh, and granted, this is a this is also a risk with bad horror, you know, because it's sometimes it's even worse, right? Because they're struggling with the with Titanic feelings of like fear and hatred and and uh, and so forth, like all these negative aspects of uh, of existence. And then sometimes the people managing all of these feelings, you know, they don't have the the storytelling or filmmaking. Um, expertise to really do it well. So it's like going to a, a pharmacy and, and having somebody like, uh, you know, uh, what it, c- compile your... Um, spilling pills all over you. Yeah, just spilling you, pills all over yeah. the place and then feeling like, oh, well, this is probably going to poison me because they have no idea what they're doing. They don't know how to dish out the appropriate dosage. And you want you want the appropriate dosage of horror. Uh, and sometimes it's easier to err on underdosing yourself. <laughs> Okay, dogs don't have faces and the movies are trying to harm you. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes. No, sometimes. I mean, I think you could be right. You could be onto something there. Uh, but you know what, Robert? I think this next this next email is going to put you in a vulnerable place and make you feel something. All right, here we go. This one comes to us from George. I was listening to the Warm Feelings episode and was moderately skeptical of the sensation, which made me feel odd since I was hearing so much evidence. The feeling was short-lived due to the explanation of the Muda scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, I perked up, knowing full well the story. After the explanation, the mention of being a wrestling fan did cause me to experience the feeling in my chest, and I felt an involuntary smile in the sense of camaraderie. Living in Orlando, I get the chance to attend NXT television with around 300 people, and there is a special communal energy. As an aside, I am thrilled to be seeing Great Muda live this April in Tampa. Thank you uh, for the varied subjects and depth of research and attention. You make my workday that much better. George V. Uh, well, yeah, well, that's that's awesome to hear. I, I, uh, I think this is a common experience with, you know, with seeing, a, uh, say, professional wrestling or any kind of like performance like this, especially when you have a smaller audience, a kind of like tight knit uh, group, uh, uh, you know, certainly with 300 people in attendance at an NXT taping, uh, you know, it makes sense that you would have this, uh, this kind of reaction to it. You know, I naively would have expected that uh, wrestling falls more in the bad movie category where it's something that you can expect to only engage you in a shallow way that is kind of funny and fun and you you wouldn't expect to be deeply emotionally moved by it. I'm surprised how much emotional investment people do seem to have in it. Well, it's – you can get very invested in an emotional experience even if you know basically what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, one example, wrestling-based, uh, that, uh, that comes to mind to explain this is I've seen people talk about uh, Lucha Libre in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I, I forget who was having this conversation, but one side was like, well, I would get more into it, but it's so predictable. Like, you know, whether the good guy or the bad guy is going to win. And, uh, and then the other person compared it more to like a passion play, you know, where the good guys 
win for the same reasons that the good guys win in myths and folk tales and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so you have to think of it less as a like cinematic uh, presentation of a story and more of these, you know, these these tropes, these ideals coming together and battling each other. And then the audience shares in the communal experience of this. So it's I mean, it's it's the same with. You know, puppet shows and shadow puppetry and various performances throughout history in that regard. Don't be the guy hating on wrestling because it's not realistic. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, I, an exa- a, a fun example. Over the weekend, I was in uh, I was at Universal Studios, uh, uh, Florida. Okay. In the Harry Potter land with my family. Uh-huh. Uh, my son's a big Harry Potter fan. We're we're all Harry Potter fans. And they had a, a like this live performance puppet show of um, the the story of the three brothers, uh, as is told in the, the Deathly Hallows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's you know it's a it's a fun little story like three adventurers and death and the gifts of death the elder one the uh, you know uh, the, the magical stone the invisibility cloak and uh, they're, so they're performing the story for everybody everybody knows the story because they've they've either read it uh, you know or if they've seen the film uh, and perhaps they've seen it earlier in the day because they perform it like every half hour or so right uh-huh. uh, but everybody gets into it like part of it is knowing the the show you're about to see and uh, and there was this kind of communal vibe to it that was pretty exciting even though it is you know a performance at a theme park. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will explore some additional entries of listener mail. All right. We're back. We're moving on from uh, Kamamuda and getting into some divine territory. Right. So we're going to be talking about uh, messages that came in after our uh, Is Santa a God episodes. Those were definitely a lot of fun. Uh, again, we know some people occasionally listen with their kids. So the next few minutes will involve some frank discussion of the, uh, the jolliest of old elves. Uh, just be warned there. That's right. Skip ahead if you need to. All right, Taylor writes, hi, Robert and Joe. Uh, Taylor again writing from Salt Lake City to share my childhood experience of Santa in a Christian household. I grew up uh, LDS or Mormon, more uh, colloquially, and Santa did experience a mild induction into my childhood faith. Hmm. I've always been intensely curious and even as a child was very concerned about establishing a consistent uh, etiology for the universe. So when I was four or five years old, I wondered why Santa would need to keep watch when God already knew everything that was going on. For context, my family and I have, have long since left the faith and my parents were never very fundamental about their beliefs. When I presented my Santa dilemma to my parents, they cunningly replied that God must have invested Santa with this holiday responsibility. And I was delighted that God would be concerned with which Transformers I received that year. (laughs) My parents never made any connection to the historical St. Nicholas, perhaps because Mormonism is an American religion far removed from Catholicism, uh, perhaps because they weren't very interested in history back then, and most likely because, as you say, they were Santa. The belief was cemented when I stumbled across an esoteric verse in King James Version of the Bible, Zechariah 2.6, quote, Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, saith the Lord. Whoa. Unquote. Between the ho-ho, the land of the north, and spread abroad as the four winds, I was convinced of Santa's divine investiture, never mind the context or the rest of the surrounding verses. 
These revelations and a repeat encounter with a mall Santa sustained my fundamental belief in the jolly old elf for several more years, despite my in- investigative nature. As for the mall Santa, I ran into him twice in a week, first at a grocery store and then at a party organized by our congregation. When I sat on Santa's lap at the church party, he handily remembered what I'd asked him for days prior at the grocery store, and that blew my little mind. The possibility that this was a man with a particularly gifted memory and not the literal Kris Kringle did not cross my mind for some years. I didn't believe that every mall Santa was the genuine article, but I thought the fat man must spice it up with some special appearances. (laughs) I love that. Happy holidays to you both, and thank you as always for creating such genuinely engaging content. I haven't missed an episode in years. Taylor. P.S. I'm thrilled you enjoyed my Pokemon email uh, enough to share it. Oh, that one must have been a while back. Uh, This was great, and this really connected with a lot of memories I have about uh, Santa beliefs as a kid, like try to trying to incorporate Santa into a Christian worldview and saying, okay, God already knows everything, but mm-hmm. Santa all, also knows everything. Santa must sort of work for God. Hmm. He's like maybe at the level of the angels or something. I don't know. It's weird. I, you know, dis- despite growing up in, you know, in, in a religious household and, uh, and then certainly hearing talk about God and, and church and so forth. I don't think I ever really compared God with Santa. You know, I, I didn't really, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure what it was, but I never really thought too long and hard about what their relationship with each other were. In a way, I kind of, maybe it was kind of, it was kind of like engaging with, with separate worldviews. Like when mm. I was thinking about Santa, I was thinking about like the Santa um uh, you know, version of of reality, and then when I'm engaging with uh, with with church, it's the church version of reality, and um, yeah, uh, that's that's the best I can figure on that on that count. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I was always trying to make sense of it crammed together, like Taylor, like putting it all in. Okay, how does this fit? Um, I I also remember this similar feeling of like, okay, I know not all of the Santas you see at the mall and everywhere can be the real Santa, but I wonder if some of them are. <laughs> like <laughs> like Taylor's saying, like occasionally the real Santa shows up at the mall, but most of the mall Santas are fake. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, it becomes just such an in- increasingly complex exercise <laughs> when you try and stitch that together. And I guess that's part of the the, the, the situation, right? Eventually, you just re- – there are just too many flaws. There are too many plot holes. And, uh, and certainly, if you pull Occam's razor out, uh, then that's the end of it. Now, this next uh, email comes from our listener, Arson, and it concerns the question we asked in the Santa God episode, like, what would it take for a real Santa religion to form, like an actual religion with Santa as a god, you know, meant seriously in the way people's other gods are meant seriously? Arson says, hello, Robert and Joe. I think I have a simple solution for how Santa Claus could continue to inspire belief in adults. The first is to change physical gifts wrapped with a label stating they're from Santa to gifts with less concrete origins. It's pretty common in religions focused on a deity for people to attribute fortunate things to various gods. This is also a common way to scam people out of money, most notably groups or individuals that request the person being scammed to send increasing amounts of 
money with the promise that there will be an exponential return on that investment. Even though there is no real result, the person being scammed can attribute their luck to the scam and thus their belief in the ideas behind it can be strengthened. It would not take much of a stretch to tell children who reach a certain age that adults do the work of distributing gifts that Santa provides for in the form of mysterious windfalls. This would have a basis in St. Nicholas history since he was said to give money to keep people out of poverty and sin. The tradition some people have of choosing one person to play Santa and hand out gifts could work as a stepping stone for older children who would be preparing to be agents of Santa themselves. This would eliminate the need for Santa to have a physical location and a workshop and helpers. He would only need to mysteriously provide resources. This could also change the equation about who receives presents. Naughty children might lead to a family receiving less bounty during the holidays, so unfortunate circumstances might be placed on children not being good enough. Hopefully, though, the blame would fall equally on everyone. In that case, everyone in the house would have incentive to keep everyone else in line. If the elf on a shelf remained popular, it could take a darker turn and mutate into one of Santa's evil helpers. (laughs) Another thing he is known for is being a protector of children, which seems to be one reason he survived various cultural and religious shifts. I highly recommend listening to the episode of Our Fake History, where the host goes into detail about all of his variations. In one instance, a child who had been abducted was rescued by a flying St. Nicholas who swooped in, grabbed him by the hair, and deposited him with his family. But St. Nicholas was also known to zealously discipline bad children, including beating them. His various helpers have been known to enslave bad children or worse. I think it would be easy for an adult, especially a parent, to buy more into this myth because of how fragile children are. They might not fear a child being physically carried off, but what if these helpers had equally mysterious gifts to give? Was that flu a fluke, or was the child naughty? Does my child have good enough grades or a clean enough room to be on the good list? I can imagine parents agonizing over this, especially if we end up in a world where antibiotics stop working and superbugs reign supreme. On that note, I hope you both have a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year, Arson. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm having a happy new year and, and, and a good holiday season. Thank you, Arson. Uh, I agree with a lot of this. Uh, as, as I think we sort of expressed in the episodes, if Santa were to have any chance of actually becoming a god through cultural shifts over time, I think one of the most important changes would have to be, like Arson's talking about, a trend toward abstraction and obscurity, intangible gifts at unpredictable times rather than concrete toys on Christmas morning. But then it wouldn't be Santa is the thing. Like the part of the thing about Santa is that Santa appeals to young minds uh-huh. who don't they have a lot of space for these intangibles. Uh, you know, they want the the very tangible. They want the, the gift that is visible under the tree that you can pick up, that you can hold, that you can play with. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the actual Santa whose lap you can sit you can sit on. And I feel like the more abstract you make it, the more you make it for adults, the less it will it will actually resonate with the child. And then. Paradoxically, the less it will then resonate with the backward-looking adult. Well, but I think that's exactly why Arson's proposing this like progression, right? Mm-hmm. Where so adults play Santa in giving concrete gifts to children that the children understand is coming from Santa, and then there's a rite of passage where, as you grow up, you realize, oh, okay, the concrete gifts that the children got those were the you know those were uh, from adults pretending to be Santa, sort of the priests of Santa. The real Santa gives intangible benefits. 
benefits like health and wealth and stuff to people to adults who are good. Okay. Um, well, I'll also say December's crazy and nobody has time for this. This is this is too elaborate a con. Uh, <laughs> It's enough to just do, like, the normal Santa thing. Oh, I don't know. I mean, people find room to do the regular Santa thing in December and then do prosperity gospel the rest of the year. I mean, well, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I, mean, it, I know. I mean, Arson makes some good points. Maybe I'm just, uh, I'm just against the idea of destroying the idea of Santa. So, like, you know, it, there's something pure about it. Let, it. let it live for the short time it can thrive. Oh, uh, well, I'll defend Arson. I don't think Arson is suggesting this would be a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Mark. Hey, guys, absolutely love your podcast. I'm a couple of weeks behind, and I just finished your two episodes on whether Santa qualifies as a god or not. A couple of things struck out uh, to me, namely the processed food gods. You touched on the ridiculousness of the Crunchwrap Supreme God, as well as the Flying Spaghetti Monster. It occurred to me that both of those examples involve processed foods, i.e. foods that aren't found in nature. I know certain cultures have gods that reside over certain foods, like rice gods in Asian cultures. I was wondering if uh, in your hours upon uh, days, upon weeks of research, you would come across other gods constructed by humans. There are plenty of examples of human-made uh, items becoming animate or being possessed by spirits in many cultures, but I don't recall ever hearing examples of gods being handmade. Best regards, Mark. Yeah, the best example I could think of, though this fits more into the first half of what you're talking about, is the Tsukumogami, the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the tool gods from the Japanese legends that we talked about. So these like tools that were cast out in the new year, right. um, they would become animate. But I, I don't think they became – you're, uh, Mark, you're sort of making a distinction between gods that are like, you know, powerful creator type figures versus just kind of uh, things that are inhabited by minor spirits. And I think the the Tsukumogami were more minor spirits. Yeah, like he's talking about uh, could you have a situation where a major deity is a rock or something to that effect. Or it, well, is it is a handmade thing. Is something made by humans. Mm-hmm. So like a major deity is a is a metal detector or a major deity is a sword? My, my, my answer would be, would be two-part. First of all, certainly nothing is immediately coming to mind, mm-hmm. though, of course, it could be missing something. The other thing is that one of the problems or I guess you know, one of the problems that you get into when you start asking this question about gods in various belief systems is that you run into examples where gods have multiple forms, right? They right. have multiple likenesses that ultimately sum up the, uh, in, the 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 larger and inhuman quality of the god. Yeah. Where so you it it's conceivable you might have a god that sometimes appears as say a trident mm-hmm. or as a sword, but inevitably that god will also have other forms, if not within the same belief system, then at least within the tradition of belief in that entity. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. There are tons of gods that can metaphorically or maybe even literally take forms of human-made objects uh, much more often if you accept metaphorical uses. I mean, like Jesus says, I am the door. He that enters me will be saved and mm-hmm. will go in and out to pasture. You know, But like um, that that's obviously meant as like a metaphor. It's just saying like it is through me that something will happen. Right. Surely there are myths – I didn't find any directly, but surely there are myths of gods 
that have sort of anthropomorphic forms generally appearing in the forms of weapons. That's got to happen. Well, yeah, it would be interesting to look into that more and look for specific examples of that. All right, we're going to take another break. But when we come back, we are going to consider some facial recognition emails. All right, we're back. All right, so these messages came in response to the facial recognition episodes we did. This first one comes from Jim in New Jersey. Jim says, Robert and Joe, I have several thoughts on your latest facial recognition episodes. When I was a teenager, I would develop a crush on a girl, but I was also too shy and awkward to approach her. I noticed I had a very difficult time recalling her face when she was not around. I don't recall having this for anyone else. I have no idea of the cause. I figured it was a mental tick as I struggled to figure out dating. That was kind of interesting. I think we talked in the episode about the ideas of uh, facial recognition maybe being um, easier in cases where you engage less emotionally with the face. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. Um, Jim says, advance forward several decades. One day I was passing a coworker in the hall and we stopped to chat. Her face disappeared. It was replaced with something kind of shimmery. I looked away and noticed it wasn't just her face. It was this, it was my center field of vision. I had previously scheduled an eye appointment soon after that and I described it to the doctor. She very casually said that I had experienced an ocular migraine and that I should worry about it. I think maybe Jim means I shouldn't worry about it. Um, she got them too. I've only had a handful since, and they tend to go away in a minute or two. Oliver Sachs had them as well and wrote of them. Finally, your discussion of law enforcement using facial recognition software produced a scene in my mind I'm sure we've all seen in crime drama movies and television. It's the trope of the corkboard in the detective room with photos of the suspects and lines connecting them. What if facial recognition software could produce these? Here's my thought. Facial recognition software finds a suspect's face in photos scraped off the web. There will certainly be others' faces in some of these photos. I'm sure it will be able to identify these faces, which could lead to other photos of with new faces and more photos with more faces. Each photo with multiple faces would be a link establishing a relationship of those in the photo. More shared photos would increase the strength of that relationship. Eventually, probably very quickly, a network of closely related individuals would emerge, the gang, so to speak. We already have clustering algorithms that do this. We might even be able to identify subclusters and hierarchies within the organization. I'm not sure if I find this idea really interesting or really frightening. Uh, Jim in New Jersey. And Jim also says, thanks, I now have the Friends theme song repeating in my head as an earworm. I think that comes from us talking about uh, uh, Jennifer Aniston cells. Oh, yes, the, the Jennifer Aniston cells. Yes. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about um, about about the about sitcoms and uh, how sometimes the characters on sitcoms are so familiar that they are like actual friends. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Liam. Liam writes, hey, Joe and Robert, first of all, love the show as well as Invention. I made the jump over from Stuff You Should Know just over a year ago and have smashed your catalog in that time. Both your intellectual insights and tight research really does blow my mind. Just finished listening to the three-part facial recognition apps. I'm the kind of person that usually takes the side of, if you have nothing to hide, who cares, mainly because trying to stop technology seems futile. So just go with the flow and try and enjoy 
enjoy the terrifying ride. At the start of the first episode, I thought, meh, what's the big deal? But by the end, I was fully aboard the ban it until we figure this out boat. I do find it interesting to think that for half a century or more, we've been waiting and hoping for a personal helper robot to clean our homes and make our dinner. But this would require facial recognition to be a thing and work flawlessly. Now it looks like we are very close uh, to it being a reality. Uh, I find it a little creepy uh, to imagine a helper robot that could recognize me, even with a partially covered face. Nefarious government taps into your domestic robots to be spies in the home. The story writes itself. Anyway, keep it up. I recommend your show to uh, anyone standing nearby who says the word podcast. Cheers, Liam. So it sounds like we scared you. Uh, I don't know if we meant to scare you. I guess we did mean to give you a fuller picture, but uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess we did intend to scare people. At least, I mean, I felt a little scared after uh, researching it. I mean, yeah. part of it, I think the importance of it is that there is a lot in technology that we have, that we're anxious about. Uh, but this is an area where like our cultural anxiety around it, I don't think has, generally speaking, has not risen to the appropriate level. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, whatever we can do to to help you fear the things in technology that you should fear, more like this, uh, and perhaps a little less in, in other categories that you might have been freaking out about. Like this is one that uh, we're also at a point where some things can be done, some things can, uh, some you know, restrictions can be put in place. It's not necessarily too late. Uh, yeah, the, this is followed through in the next email. This comes from Kenna. Uh, Kenna said, hi, Robert and Josh. Oh, thanks, Kenna. <laughs> thanks a lot. It's okay. I understand. Well, you, you know, she, she maybe she thinks you're Robert and I'm Josh, so it, <laughs> it could go either way. Hi, Robert and Josh. I just listened to all your facial recognition episodes back to back, and I think uh, and I think the people arguing for only restricting these sorts of technologies by the end-user legal agreement covered in episode three are missing a very major point. Tech monopolies and coercive end-user agreements wherein you have to agree to the terms in order to access a necessary service. We talked a little bit about this, I think, when we talked about like using facial recognition for payment. And mm-hmm. uh, but Kenna continues, for example, one of the earlier episodes mentioned using facial recognition to compile medical records of livestock. Applied to cows, this seems like a good idea. But if it were instituted as part of your electronic medical records or as your real ID for voting – Opting in would be a requirement for civic participation or access to health care. Extrapolate that to public school access, receiving government unemployment or disability benefits, or citizenship verification for employment, and you can quickly make facial recognition not only an insidious tool of surveillance, but an extremely insecure one, much like social security numbers are becoming, as we're required to give them out more and more often to verify our identity, our credit, and the like. Love the episodes. They really clarified the reasoning behind my instinctive dread of this particular form of surveillance, Kenna. Very good points, I think. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Eli. Hey there, big fan of the show. I just had to write in because when Robert said that dogs don't have faces, <laughs> I mentally did a double take, if that makes sense. I actually lost my train of thought. I was listening to the podcast at work because I instantly was gripped by the question, do people not think dogs have faces and it's just me? 
And then when Joe laughed, it seemed that my world was turning right side up, uh, back up. Uh, not that my experience is representative of a larger swath of humanity, but as I thought about it, I've never heard of someone who doesn't consider dogs, cats, or birds, birds, to have faces. <laughs> You're shocked and newly shocked. It just seems like a bird has less of a face. Birds than me, have faces, Robert. Anyway, it, it, uh, Eli continues. Frequently, both my wife and sister will refer to dogs' faces as they interpret their emotions or when describing how cute they are. So thanks for saying that you don't see it that way, Robert, because I had never even supposed there was another way to see it. Keep up the good work, Eli. You know, I share Eli's thoughts. I uh, No, seriously, I, uh, I I don't see how you could think dogs don't have faces, but I'm glad you don't. I think that's very interesting. You have expanded my mind. I mean that. <laughs> well, like I say, I'm not trying to convince anybody of this, um, this way of thinking about, uh, about faces. But if I were to – if there was like a – you know, these kind of like, um, uh, you know, uh, human identity tests that they give you sometimes, like there will be a grid of squares and you have to highlight all the squares that have stop signs in them. If I were presented with one of those and you had like human faces in some and then you had some pictures of like cats and dogs and the others and it says mark all the ones that have faces, I, I guess I would fail that test and they would consider me uh, to be some sort of uh, internet uh, scrying robot. Uh, but no, that'd be good. You, you'd be sabotaging the machine for our, for our benefit in the long run. Okay. Okay. Uh, next, I think we should transition to talking about some feedback we got on our episode on Bandersnatch, where we talked a good bit about free will, whether this concept makes any sense, how issues of it are highlighted by, uh, you know, the, the ways that technology may be accommodating our preferences without us even knowing it. This first message comes to us from Andreas. Andreas says, hi, guys. On the Bandersnatch episode, you mentioned the possibility of movie content to be specifically tailored to specific audiences based on, for example, their ideological or political profiles. And I think you insinuated that this might be a positive experience for the user, the underlying reasoning being, of course, that their own worldview is reinforced. Uh, to clarify, I definitely didn't mean it would be positive, but I – uh, we did talk about how companies might assume that this would be more palatable to a wider range of users, which mm -hmm. I think is probably true. That might be different than being actually beneficial. Andreas continues, to challenge this, I would posit the following two options, but with their own worldly consequences. A, human beings are inherently flawed in that we instinctively seek to reinforce our own beliefs and that technology will inevitably drive us towards an increasingly polarized world of ideological bubbles. This option would confirm your thesis on the Bandersnatch episode. But there's another option. B. Human beings are inherently flawed in that we have a longing and desire for stories and legends to contain our own ideologies and, very importantly, for those ideologies to be disseminated to and adopted by more people, not to reinforce our own beliefs but to impose or bring those beliefs on others, perhaps with the motivation of growing and strengthening the tribe with which we identify. If B is true, assuming that the movie-watching audience is aware that the content they're watching is specifically tailored to them – so again, this would be like, you know, you watch the movie and it just like – there are multiple versions of each scene filmed where you can get the version that, that the computer thinks is most suitable to your personality mm. – um, they would arguably not find any additional pleasure in watching a story with a worldview consistent with their own since they would know that it was only themselves who got to see it and that their worldview would not be disseminated to others who disagreed with it. As an example, would you rather watch 
A, a political commentator on your favorite political TV channel stating a, a point with which you agree, or B, watch the same political commentator go on a news show that typically hosts different political views and make the same statements there. In both cases, your worldview is reinforced, but the second option, it is also disseminated to people who disagree with it. Uh, and Andreas thinks that people will find this much more satisfying. I think that we want to see our beliefs reinforced, but only insofar as they are communicated to others. Hence, the pleasure someone might take in, for example, watching a strongman speech in a movie does not solely come from the speech matching their belief, but from them agreeing with it and, more importantly, knowing that others will hear this supposedly important speech. I wonder what you think. Thanks for the great show, Andreas. Uh, I think this makes a sort of good point, but I think that these are both true to some extent because hearing statements we strongly already agree with is inherently pleasing for multiple reasons. For example, uh, processing fluency. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about this on the show before. We naturally find ideas, all kinds of stimuli, not just statements about politics, but, you know, art and stuff like that more pleasing when we're more familiar with it, when it is easily processed by the brain because the brain is lazy and it likes things that are easy to take in and make sense of. Uh, but then also, you know, there are other reasons why it might feel good, like creating a feeling of social inclusion. Uh, but I, I agree with Andreas that we also like the idea of statements we agree with being spread to others. In the context of a fictional TV show, um, you know, we're watching it for entertainment and relaxation usually. I, I can see pure processing fluency advantage driving a big slice of the behavioral pie about how people would actually express their preferences. Yeah. Uh, you know, Andreas brings brings up some good points here. I, I I feel a little differently about the uh you know the 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 possibility A versus possibility B uh because possibility B in which you know your your favorite political commentator or whatever goes on a a show and shares this idea with others that sounds a lot like to, to put it in a like a film connotation like a movie going connotation like watching a film that you're into with a hostile audience. Yes. And that does not sound pleasant to me. That sounds like something I would wish to avoid at all costs because I don't want – I would prefer to enjoy something I like with like-minded people that will also enjoy it. And I – and I – I'm not one of those people that it's where I want to then see my the things I love like battered into other people. Like I would I would like to share things that I like with other people that might mm -hmm. be receptive to them, but I'm not going to stand around trying to convince somebody that say The Fly is a great movie if I know they're just not the type of person who likes this film. Well, Here's a here's a counterpoint I'll give you. I have a very specific memory about a, a film with you know that could be interpreted in a political way in a seemingly hostile audience. I remember when I was in very conservative East Tennessee, going to a movie theater and seeing Brokeback Mountain in mm -hmm. the theater, and I remember specifically at the time being concerned that. There would be people who would be in the audience with like, I don't know, with anti-gay points of view mm -hmm. reacting in a hostile way to right. the film in the theater. And I remember early in the film, there were some people around me who, you know, they weren't hostile, but they were kind of like snickering like, like the movie uh -huh. was funny. And then at the end, some of those same people were walking out of the movie in tears. Huh. And that – I don't know. That, that was an interesting experience because I felt like the movie um, – 
to to an audience of people who might not necessarily have been very sympathetic to the idea of uh, of a romance between two men originally for some reason ended up in the theater watching this movie and then were emotionally moved by it. I, I guess one of the, the things that yeah, that is most comforting about this scenario is that it it comes down to the fact that there is there is a concrete version of this film. Mm-hmm. So if if anyone is won over by some aspect of it, they are still won over by the film Brokeback Mountain or or whatever the you know the, the specific film example is. But you if we go into this like full future Bandersnatch scenario. Where, Which, uh, just to clarify again, I was not bringing that up in the episode because I was saying it's good. No, no, no like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like the bad thing about it would mean that it would mean nothing to say that you like a particular film. Exactly. If Brokeback Mountain is different for everybody who views it based on their own pre-existing, uh, you know, religious or political viewpoint, then it means absolutely nothing to say you like it right. because everybody will like it because the version they are served will be the version that matches their expectations and their values. Exactly. I think that's a very good wrinkle. Yeah. I mean it would it would totally change what it means to say that you that you liked a movie or that you liked a TV show. It would it would mean more like, you know, whatever version of this the machine put together for me because it thought I would like it did indeed trigger my pleasure centers. Yeah. It would not represent a statement that was applicable to anybody else's experience. Yeah. And then how would people have hot takes on films anymore, right? Well, that might be good, but <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from MCAT. MCAT writes, As you discussed in the Basilisk episode, the free will of people are hard to predict, and I just wanted to put in my input on your Bandersnatch episode. When I played through the episode of Bandersnatch, and I believe MCAT is talking about actually watching the episode of Black Mirror. Not our podcast, yeah. yeah. Uh, I hated that they pushed me to only two choices every time a choice came up. As I played, I came upon the choice of watching one of two characters die on screen. I really didn't like it, so I chose a third option never prompted. I quit watching. (laughs) I stopped the episode and never watched it again. I refused the two choices always put forth. I kind of felt heroic, feeling like I saved a life doing it. (laughs) But I feel like you didn't even possibly uh, think of this on the episode you recorded on the Bandersnatch. Personally, I hate being forced uh, to an A or B choice. There's many ways to think about an option, but I feel like personally that people don't think outside the box. Hopefully someone else uh, also said this to help uh, think on the options. But also, I love your podcast, and you help my three-year-old son fall asleep with your calm voices. Plus, I get to learn on the side. Thanks for your critical thinking skills, and I will always be a fan. MCAT. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and certainly one always has the option of turning it off, uh, which yeah. which is it's, I think it's valuable to uh, to keep that in mind is that you can always just reject the thing that you're you're interacting with. Mm-hmm. Like I, I actually had this conversation with my son uh, recently because we were watching. We happened to come come across uh, like shortlisted films for uh, best animated uh, short, uh, and uh, we watched this one about this. Um, these two stuffed animals that live in a sushi restaurant, and it was really sad. It was like a sad little uh, little short, and he didn't Aww. like it. It made him feel sad, and so I had to explain to him. It's like, well, you know, one of the things about about watching shows and you know engaging with art is that if you don't ultimately don't like it, it's totally okay to just to not like it, to reject it, and say I'm not going to let this one you know really be a part of my mind any more than uh, it has to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of an over-explanation of the obvious, but yeah, if you don't like it, uh, yeah, 
turn it off. And I don't mean that snarkily, but we have to, we have to, I think sometimes we have to remember that given, especially given like how important media is in our culture, that yeah. it's okay to just opt out of, of things that, uh, you know, don't make us happy. We should be doing a lot more opting out. Yeah. Okay, to address one more thing in response to Bandersnatch, I just have to uh, uh, address uh, – Taylor wrote in. We're not going to read this one in full, but but Taylor mentions, quote, In the episode, Joe remarked that interactive storytelling in video games was a mostly failed device. I'll forgive you, Joe, because I know you aren't a big gamer, but this absolutely is not the case. Player-driven narratives are hugely popular in AAA and indie video game titles alike and are arguably the most popular method of storytelling in video games games. Um, so whatever I said here, I probably failed to communicate what I meant to communicate, which I was trying to refer back to the style of interactive movie games that were popular on CD-ROM and Laserdisc in the 90s. Do you remember these, Robert? Yeah, where it's it's more in keeping with Bandersnatch. Yeah, it's, it's more, a movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like uh, there were several like high profile ones that were like major flops that were widely criticized. Uh, when, I, when I do play modern video games, it's absolutely good story-driven games that I like. I don't mess around with, you know, multiplayer games or whatever that stuff is. So, yes, I, I am aware of, uh, like, narrative-based video games. And uh, we, we've talked about some on the show before, like uh, you know, Soma and mm-hmm. things like that. So I, I'm sorry if I was inarticulate about that. I, I the, the ones I meant had failed had been the CD-ROM interactive movies, which yeah. – uh, like yeah, basically, I think the point you and, and and I were both trying to make is that this idea of a cinematic experience, like a purely cinematic experience, that is also subject uh, to audience choices, has never fully taken off, uh, and certainly has never rivaled the more traditional cinematic experience. Yeah, I think the narrative can work in a more consistently active experience like a video game. I mean, I Mm -hmm. think one thing that's jarring about something like Bandersnatch or any of these interactive movies is that you're constantly being sort of jostled back and forth between experiencing it in a passive way and then suddenly having to engage. And that is just not a, it's not a very smooth experience. It's not uh, it's not necessarily a very pleasurable experience. It's better to be more in the fully active mode consistently or in the fully passive mode consistently. Right. Yeah, you either want to be a driver or a passenger, but you don't want to suddenly have to switch back and forth between the two. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great metaphor. Yeah, like what would it be like to be riding where you kept having to reach over and take the wheel every few miles? Yeah. All right, let's uh, get to a few more listener mails here. We have some that came in uh, regarding our, our 10th anniversary episode. This was the episode where Allison Loudermilk, uh, my original co-host on the show, came back on board and we we all caught up about uh, – we got everybody caught up about like what's going on with How Stuff Works and uh, the former Stuff podcast, like Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We talked about what How Stuff Works is up to, what Allison is up to, and reminisced a little bit about the the early days of, uh, of podcasting mm-hmm. at How Stuff Works. Uh, now, when I pasted these into our document here. I made some abridgments in all of them, so these won't be read in full, just a few comments from each. This first one comes from Jim, uh, our frequent correspondent, Jim in New Jersey. He says, uh, congratulations on 10 years. I think I've been listening since episode one. I checked my sent email, and as best I can tell, I've written to you 77, now 78 times. 
He says the first time he wrote in was 2011 about whether mathematics is an invention or a discovery. He argued it's kind of both. Ah, yes. Uh, I think he argued it's, it's kind of like the rules of chess, you mm-hmm. know, uh, like you can discover strategies, but you also like invent the, the rules to begin with. Uh, and then Jim says, may you have many more years to educate and entertain us. Jim in New Jersey. Thanks, oh, wow. Jim. Yeah, well, Jim has an ability there with the emails that we do not have because we've changed owners enough time and we've changed email addresses enough time that like I have no I have no access to the old emails anymore. No, yeah, you can't can't search all the way back. All right, this one comes to us from Nathan. To Robert, Allison, Julie, and all the hosts who followed after, thank you for being part of my life. Ten years ago, I finished a decade in the Army and got my first smartphone where I found a podcast app. The first podcast I listened to was Quirks and Quarks, followed in a few weeks with Stuff from the Science Lab. Your show became so much more than I expected. For the next five years, I listened and became a legitimately different person. Despite being interested in science, I was raised as a young Earth creationist and had lots of barriers to scientific thinking that were just a part of my learning. Your clear explanation of scientific ideas and your willingness to revel in not knowing everything was one of the most refreshing things I could have at that time. And then Nathan goes on to say some, some other nice things, uh, but uh, but that's the, the the quick summary there. I will say I think a strength of our show is that we revel in not knowing everything. <laughs> yes, yeah, um, yeah. I think that that is important is to yeah to realize that there's there's not just knowing and not knowing. There is there is the journey between the two, and mm-hmm. and certain ultimate knowledge, ultimate. Whatever you know, it's like we're all on a on a continuing journey of exploration and self betterment, and uh, that's just we. The, the more willing we are to accept that, I think the the more peaceful our lives are. All right, this next message comes from Josh. Josh says, hello, Robert and Joe and Christian too. I heard you guys mention on the 10th anniversary show how much you appreciate it when listeners tell you the show changed their lives. Uh, I thought you might appreciate my story. I'm currently an engineering PhD student studying how bacteria interact with engineered nanomaterials. A large part of why I decided to pursue a PhD is because of the attitude towards science as a continuous quest for knowledge shows like stuff to blow your mind have imparted on me. I started listening to podcasts about four years ago, and while many shows have been added or cut from my feed, I've always kept stuff to blow your mind. Sincerely, Josh. Oh, that 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 is that is really sweet to hear, and 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 certainly, yeah, we are super grateful of anyone who who hangs with the show or to, or even discovers us anew because there's just so much there's so much out there today. There's so many podcasts. Every you know, every expert seems to have a podcast these days. Every yeah. celebrity has a podcast. There are so many wonderful shows and also just a lot of noise as well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we feel privileged uh, anytime we listeners continue to keep us in their feed. And, uh, you know, we, we don't take that lightly. We realize that that is the place that, that, ha- that has to be earned. All right, this one comes to us from Anne. Anne writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Joe. Congratulations on hitting 10 years of the podcast. I've listened to nearly the entire archive. I just need to listen to the first two episodes, How Fighting Asteroids Works and Amazing Infestations, which were mentioned in today's anniversary special. Allison was a great blast from the past. Uh, and then she goes on to suggest that uh, someday, someday we should explore the concept of déjà rêvé. Is it déjà rêve? Déjà uh, rêvé? Rêve? I don't, rêve. I don't know. Uh, literally translating to already dreamed. Have we ever experienced it? 
Uh, I assume she means um, if we've ever had a dream that we feel like we've we've dreamt before. Oh, I think it's the other way around. I think it's uh, you ever have the experience. It's like deja vu, but instead uh, of thinking I already did this, you think I dreamed this. I've absolutely had that experience. I remember feeling that very strongly as a child. I uh, there's one that stuck out in my mind where um, I was in the front yard playing with some friends and I was running around and I ran into a low-lying branch. It like hit me in the eye. Uh And I remember at the the time just having this powerful feeling of this just happened to me in a dream. I dreamed this entire scene with the branch in my eye and and all the people here. And I don't think that was true, but it was a powerful sensation. Huh. I I don't think I've ever experienced that. I think it, I certainly have situations where I certainly experience deja vu, mm-hmm. and I, I've certainly had dreams that I either remember or misremember having had before, but I've never – I don't think I've ever experienced anything in life and, and felt like it was a reenactment of something that occurred in a dream. I think that's something we could definitely come back to. Yeah, thank yeah. you, man. Anyway, Anne uh, says, thank you for reading my email. I think this would be a great topic to cover on the show. Cheers to 10 more years. Anne. All right. Sounds good. Ten more. We'll put it down for ten more. <laughs> All these people breaking my heart. <laughs> Seriously, y- uh, y'all out there are, are so kind to get in touch with us with these words of encouragement. And uh, it, it it feels so nice. So so thank you. Thank you, the listener. Absolutely. And and hopefully, yeah, in ten years when Carney is the, the, the sole host of the show, Carney will have us back on to uh, to reminisce about uh, the old days. Occasionally, he'll bring on our jarred heads like in Futurama. Yeah. We can, we can argue with uh, the Richard Nixon head. Yeah. I'm Fetus looking forward to flakes. that. Yeah, that'll be good. All right. Uh, well, like I say, we receive a lot of listener mail, and we, we 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 generally read it all. We don't have time to respond to it all, and we don't have time to share it all here. But uh, just you know, be assured that if you send it in, uh, our eyeballs will linger over it. Uh, and uh, you know, if if you didn't, uh, if your stuff didn't get read today, maybe we'll fit it in next time. Because again, we've just received so much great content. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, perhaps you heard reference to an episode that you haven't listened to yet. Well, you can go back and find it. Where you can you, where can you find the show? Well, you can find the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Wherever that happens to be, just uh, help us out by subscribing, uh, by rating, and by reviewing. Those are the things you can do that help out the show in the long run. And certainly write in because we would love to hear from you. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.